Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Timothy Snyder, the Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Dr. Snyder is the author of numerous award-winning books, including his latest called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Today, we're talking about his 20 lessons directed towards individuals, 20 things that people can do to prohibit a takeover by tyranny and fascism, even in this country. Tim, you are a a noted scholar, especially in Eastern European uh, history. Uh, You took it upon yourself, though, uh, in February of 2017, uh, you had a book published called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and it appears that it's aimed at a lay audience. Would that be correct? Absolutely. I'm a historian, but this is not a history book. It's really a a political pamphlet in the great American tradition of writing political pamphlets in times of distress. So what I'm trying to do is compress and concisely express what I think I know from working on the history of Europe, the darker parts of the history of Europe for the past 25 years, into a few pages of, of guidance and instruction for Americans so that we can better recognize threats to democracy, and as we recognize them, prepare ourselves to act. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a book for citizens. That's what it is. And it's divided into these sort of 20 lessons, and reading through it, uh, they're not very long. They're, they're, they're pretty short. You could probably read the whole book in, in an hour or two. Uh, but uh, they're really poignant, and I know you've studied the Holocaust. You've studied a lot of Eastern European strife. Did all of that generate these 20 tips or these 20 issues? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, the, you know, I'm an American, uh, but intellectually and morally, politically, the book is a kind of homecoming for me. Uh, I, I, I come home with, with the knowledge, uh, with the conviction that it can happen. You know, in the, in the sort of great question, can it happen here? Can democracy collapse? Can authoritarianism arise? To me, it's obvious that, that it can, just because I've spent so much of my mental life or my emotional life, my intellectual life elsewhere, elsewhere, but in places that are not so different really. Um, so I, I was, I, I, as you say, I've studied the Holocaust and also other forms of Nazi terror and, and, and Soviet terror as well. I've studied communism as well. And so I, I, when I look at the 30s and 40s in Europe, I'm looking at a situation which is not incomprehensible to us. I'm looking at people who are recognizably very much like ourselves. And, you know, the it happened. Millions of people were killed. Um, democratic regimes collapse. Authoritarian regimes took their place. Or to put it a different way, uh, I, I was taught by people 
East European, Central Europeans who survived communism, um, in some cases who survived the Holocaust. And that makes all of this real. If your teachers are people for whom this was their their life, for whom the Warsaw Ghetto was their life, um, or being interned in a camp in communism was their life, then that just becomes life. That becomes what's what's normal. The presumptions shift around. And then I teach. I've been teaching now for more than 15 years, and I teach East European history, which means I te- teach Eastern Euro- East Europeans. And if you think about their life, the life of young people from Eastern Europe who were born around 90 or 95 or 2000, what's happened in their lives is that history didn't end. Um, democracy was not automatic. The promises that were made after the revolutions that brought an end to communism haven't really been fulfilled. If anything, their experience has been of democracy moving away from them. So in this book, I'm trying to learn from their experiences too, because it's a good idea to learn from younger people if you can. Right. But also because that those things that are happening in Russia or Ukraine or Poland or Hungary, they're very similar to developments in the United States. So one way to get out ahead is not just to look at history, but to look at, at peers in, in other countries. So yeah. I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this question, so so bear with me. But uh, I'm older than you. I'm I'm a child of the Cold Wars, uh, and uh, the American power, as it seemed, uh, and then uh, also a, a child of Vietnam and and that era. It seemed, though, that even with all of that, as an American. Um, I became uh, blasé about our democracy, thinking that if it survived the Cold War, if it survived uh, some hot wars around the world, uh, it's going to survive. We don't have to tend it or take care of it. Is my view common? And, and is that why we're coming to a national shocking point? I uh, First of all, that's a, that's a wonderful question because – I mean, in it, if you'll if you'll permit me to say so, sure. I mean, in the question you you've taken you you've taken responsibility um, for making a, a mistake, right. which is fundamental to democracy itself. If we're all right about everything all the time, then democracy is impossible. The whole point of democracy is that you vote for the wrong people, and then you realize you did it, and then you try to vote for the wrong the right people, and you keep thinking about things. And you, you talk to your neighbor who maybe voted for the right people and maybe you get convinced. That's the whole point of democracy. And one of the one of the problems with where we've gotten ourselves to is that everybody thinks they're right about everything all the time. <laughs> right. And that makes that makes democracy hard. So I just I just wanted to say that I love I love I love the question for the way you put it. But i think I think you're right. That is to say, um, democracy is not something that can be taken for granted. Let me come at this three ways. The first is the the founders did not take democracy for granted. They thought democracy was difficult, that it would probably fail. They looked at ancient Greece and ancient Rome, um, looked at how Athens became an oligarchy, how Rome became an empire. They were concerned that their new republic was going to collapse as well. They were skeptical about Americans. And I think this is very important because we look at the founders with this sort of worshipful eye. But they they, they look at us future Americans with skepticism and doubt. And I think they're quite right to do so. And that's that's actually the premise of my book. I start with the founders. I start with the idea that you have to look back at history. You have to see the risks if you want to be responsible. And we just know more than the founders did because we have 200 more years of history to look at. The second way is um, with the idea of democracy. 
I think American democracy is an aspiration. Um, you know, we haven't really gotten there yet. There are some built-in problems with that constitution that the founders left us. We've come up with some innovations ourselves, um, like gerrymandering or like like all the money that we allow in politics legally, which move us, we shouldn't delude ourselves, move us away from democracy, not towards it. Um, if you look at the United States in the last 10 years, it's hard to make a case that we've moved closer to democracy. New, tw 22 new voter suppression laws are moving us away from democracy, and we should look at that clearly. Um, the third way to look at it is, is, you know, taking your cue and thinking about history. I think what you describe in yourself happened to a lot of people. I think the year 1989, which, you know, I mentioned before is, as, as the year of the, the revolutions has brought into communism. Right. I think that year brought a lot of us to the conclusion that history was over, or some people put it, there aren't any alternatives. And that's a trap. You know, that turns out to be a trap. History never ends. There are always alternatives. And if you don't think there are alternatives, then they can sneak up on you all the more quickly. And I think that is, in part, as you say, what's happened to us. The um, the other thing that I, I note, and, and it's probably obvious, but this erosion, and that's my term, of, of rights and democratic rights, uh, rights and principles is slow in in a sense that it's almost imperceptible sometimes and then mm -hmm. people give and give and give and give and then one day they have nothing more to give uh, it, it, it seems that this is not something that has exploded it's something that's eroded into our system is that correct yeah, yeah. I mean, turning to the book for a moment, that's one of the reasons why the first lesson is do not obey in advance. Um, one of the things we've learned about these authoritarian regime changes in the 20th century is that people actually have a lot more power than they think they do, but they only have that power if they decide for themselves at a certain moment that there's a line that they won't cross. Uh, you have, and, and each person will see this differently, but if you don't have the ability to say, this is not normal. If you don't have the ability to say, I now regard this as anti-democratic and I'm going to say so, I'm going to do something about it, I'm going to tell people about it. If you don't have that ability, then you will lose democracy. And of course, as I say, each of us will have different emotional and political and moral reactions to different events. But if you just don't have that ability, then you will lose democracy. Democracy depends upon people saying, I, I have this core belief, it, it cannot be crossed. And so the, the way that democracy goes away in the 21st century, and you're absolutely right, is generally not that some dictator stands up and says, I have a grand ideology of transforming the world. The way that it goes away is step by step. Um, it, it's, it's, it's insidious, as you say. Um, if you look at cases like Russia, which is a very important case for us, because in some ways we resemble Russia, it's not that they're not going to have elections. Of course they're going to have elections. It's just that each election means less than the one before. And so at a certain point, people are going along with a ritual, but they no longer believe in the substance of, of the system. That's what we have to be very careful about our, ourselves. And being careful means getting out front, not, not waiting to, not waiting and watching as democracy gets eroded because the forces of erosion are always present. But do, doing the preservation work yourself, not thinking of American democracy as something out there because it's not, but thinking of American democracy as something that you have to do. It seems that there is an overload factor, though, that uh, 
tyrants or people in power or, or, or people who want to gain power have in that if every day we get at least one, if not more than one, outrageous things happening that go against our moral system or our sense of democracy, that the people in power count on the populace having an overload factor and therefore getting tired of it all and doing nothing. Is that accurate? Yeah, you beautifully answered the, the, the question in, in the question. That is exactly right. That's a method. And so it's important when you're in the middle of an authoritarian regime change, it's important to recognize these methods and not just think, well, this is my this is my own personal reaction. I'm getting outraged every day. No, it's not your own personal reaction. It's how you're meant to feel. You're meant to exhaust yourself. You're meant to go through a cycle that starts with outrage and ends with indifference. And the only way to break that cycle, whether well, there are two things that you have to do. The first thing is is to have a kind of political hygiene. And I write about this in the book. Think about how you engage with politics. Don't just look at the internet all the time. Take some days off. Um, be careful about what you, you read. You know, Try to read rather than watch. Read things that you like. Follow particular reporters you know are carrying out investigations. Don't let the world choose you know, what comes to your eyeballs, be active about it in terms of time and place and in terms of what you're actually reading. If you do that, it's not that the problems will go away, but you'll be calmer about them. So that's the first thing is that in a system, in a situation like this, we all have to be very careful about how we use media and make sure that it's not the media who are using us. And the second thing is that it's very important to break the cycle by way of action. If you don't do anything and, but you get bombarded by all this stuff, or if you write angry things about it on the internet, you get tired and you feel like you've done something, but you haven't really done anything. Doing things means talking, getting out and getting out in the world. Um, uh, taking some specific action it doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be something as small as subscribing to a newspaper um, or organizing a meeting in your house. But any small thing that you do then makes you feel better. And then you get a virtuous cycle going. And that virtuous cycle involves talking to real people um, who agree with you about some stuff, but not everything. It involves getting projects going, which have to do with something you know about and care about. And that, so it's important to pick your spots. You know, we can't all be responding to everything, you know, from, from, from North Korea, you know, through Russia. But each of us can pick something that we're comfortable with on which we feel like we, have, we can get some traction and then keep working on that. And that's not just a good thing in itself, but it helps us, it, it, it defends us from this feeling that we're overwhelmed. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, 
research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Being a person of media, truth is something that, that I hold very dear. And your step number 10 in your book is believe in truth. Now, that being said, it seems that over, well, since the presidential election and the first year of the Trump administration, we're, we're hearing things that I never thought I would hear. Uh, alternate facts, uh, counter-narratives. I heard an interview of one woman uh, on NPR one time who said there is no such thing as truth uh, anymore. Um, And I was very critical of what she said, but then in a way I thought, well, you know, the way things are framed and the silos of bias that we live in uh, she's got a, a an apt observation, perhaps. Um, talk about that. Well, the the, the it's it's an truth is an attitude. The the it's a question of attitude. Are we trying to figure out the truth, or do we just throw up our hands? I mean, of course it's of course it's the case that you and I are not going to achieve perfect truth about anything in this conversation. You know, the, right. the, the, ver- the very best history book that I could spend my entire life writing, it might get us closer to truth, but it's not going to achieve perfect truth. But the question is the attitude. Is it, is it worth being a journalist and in, in trying to get people closer to the facts? Is it worth being a historian? Or do you throw up your hands and say, well, because there's no truth, therefore, right, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do anything. It, to, me, to me, it's an attitude. Um, and it's an attitude on which the future of our kind of political system depends. If you say there's no truth and you give up looking for it, that means you're giving up on a whole lot of other things. It means that you're giving up on your ability to defend your rights. Because if you don't know, if you're going to say actively there aren't any facts or each interpretation is as good as any other, what you're basically doing is issuing an invitation to technologically savvy aspiring tyrants to fill your brain with the stuff that you want to hear. Because once you give up on facts, you're not going to give up on the stuff you like. Nobody ever gives up on that. People might say there is no truth, but nobody ever says, well, I want nothing. People want to hear the stuff they want to hear. When you give up on truth, what you're saying is give me the stuff I want to hear. And that's saying I want to live in an authoritarian regime. That's how authoritarianism works. It gives people what they want what they want to hear and they can't defend themselves with the facts. The facts are the means to self-defense. If we want to defend ourselves against radical economic inequality, we have to know where the money is. We have to know who offshores it and and how. Um, if we want to if we want to if we want to defend ourselves um, in any way we have to know what the basic factual structure of the situation is. If we want to be capable of defending ourselves or even just exercising our freedom, we have to be in groups. And the only way you can be in a group is to have some common subject, and that subject has facts around it, whether that's you know, whether that's the Boy Scouts or a stamp collecting club um, or, or whether that's um, a group of people who are going to march. If you don't have facts that you're pursuing – 
you can't trust one another. And if you can't trust one another, then you end up alone. And if you end up alone, there's no way that you can defend democracy. So the truth is extremely important. I mean, it's not just that all of the big cases of authoritarianism first do away with truth, fascism, Stalinism in different ways, modern, modern authoritarianism that we were talking about. We know this. Um, it's not just that. It's that people who don't care about truth themselves are saying, hey, why don't you enslave me? I would like that. Do not we enslave ourselves, though, on many occasions? Uh, people who want a certain kind of facts, and I use that uh, liberally here, uh, listen to Fox News. Those who want another set of facts, listen to uh, MSNBC or watch MSNBC. Uh, don't we self-select our truths? No. I know what you're saying, but I can't affirm that proposition because I happen to believe that there are truths, right? I happen okay. to believe that it is or it isn't the case that, you know, Kushner, just to take an example, Kushner, Manafort, and Trump Jr. met in Trump Tower with Russians. That either is true or it's or it's not true. It happens it happens to be true. Um, so it, it matters. It, it, I, I don't think that we can actually separate ourselves from, from, from the truth. Um, the truth is there. What we can do is we can choose to dodge it, right? I mean, the thing that strikes me when I do call-in radio programs, you know, which is a very useful thing, because then you hear from people sure. listening to different media. Sure. What strikes me is what, what different media don't cover, right? So just to stay on the example of the Russia story, when I, was out in the, when I was out in the Midwest talking about on tyranny the last time in Ohio, actually, um, I was doing a call-in show in Cleveland, and it was really useful because I was, I was talking to folks whose main source of, of news was Fox, and they were just, they just honestly didn't know basic things um, because those things hadn't been reported, right? So they didn't know right. that Mr. Trump's, um, I'm just giving you the example that came out that Mr. Trump's first foreign policy speech was written by somebody who was on the payroll of a Russian gas company. They just didn't know that basic fact, right? It's one among a thousand um, because it wasn't given to them, right? And so then you can understand that, but then that shows how important it is to have conversations. So you're right that we choose to silo each other off. We choose to do it. And that's choosing unfreedom. That's choosing not to be free. If you want to be a free person, you have to be challenged. And you can't make other people be challenged, but you can make sure that you yourself are reading different things. That doesn't have to mean different fictional things. Um, it doesn't particularly help to put your brain in the worst part of the internet and then say, <laughs> right. well, you know, Holocaust denial is the same thing as, you know, the stock market report. No, it's not, right? But what does help is to get to know reporters. Like, I mean, personally, that can happen too. But just look, looking at media, not in terms of media, not in terms of something dis distant, but in terms of physical human beings, men and women who are actually going places to cover stories, whether they work for the Wall Street Journal or whether they work for the, for the Guardian, um, getting to know those people and following them. I mean, following them on Twitter if you do that, but just following their work. And getting different points of view from actual people who actually are, are, are covering actual facts. You know, we only have so much time to spend on the internet. So rather than, you know, rather than siloing ourselves off in these echo chambers, we can actually get authentic variety. We can learn new things if we want to. That's available to us. We just have to take the initiative to do it. I have two other areas that I, I want to talk about in the, the time that we have. And Another one, and this sort of relates to truth, but in your book, you talk about the role of language 
and people in power and people who want to have total power keep using uh, language and phrases over and over and over again so that the absurd can sometimes seem like reality. Can you talk about how that's used and what we can do about that? We obviously can't uh, uh, change the speech pattern, but we can change our interpretation, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 all about the little the little bit of effort it takes to be a free person. So, I mean, in, in America, we kind of take freedom for granted, and we use the word an awful lot, and we use it in some awfully trivial and banal ways. But freedom's a really important thing, and it's 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 hard. It's it's hard to be a free person. Part part of being a free person is being able to speak in a way that everyone else is not speaking. And that means day-to-day, it means the capacity not to use the phrases that are being handed down to you from the news cycle, whether from the president or whether from anyone else. It means, it means having, having a vocabulary that comes from you and not just from the thump, 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 thump of, of the news cycle. And that means reading and talking. It means getting your brain out somewhere else besides um, the, that, that daily thumping, which you're going to get. So when the daily thumping comes, you've got some distance on it. You've got some way to talk about it. You can begin a conversation with a friend about it, which isn't just you're repeating um, the, the, the slogan of the day, whether you're for the slogan of the day or, or against it. Is, is less important. So fr- freedom really begins with language. I mean, we, we might wish to, th- because th- being free means being able to think your own thoughts. It's very hard to think your own thoughts if you don't have your own words. Thinking and, and thinking and talking go together. If the power can get you to repeat their words, then you've taken a step towards not being free. And, and this is true even if you think you're making fun. I mean, there's a, there's a danger, you know, in the people who oppose Mr. Trump, there's right. a danger that they use his terms thinking that they're making fun, but those terms then crowd out their own terms, and they're, they're, they're making a move that they don't really want to be making. It, it's, it's strange, and, and uh, I'm sitting here as I'm listening to you thinking of last week where uh, I think the president said no collusion eight times in 90 <laughs> seconds or, or, or something like that. Obviously, it's, a, it's become a mantra to implant that into, mm-hmm. the, into the psyche of, of the American psyche. Uh, but at the same time, I'm uh, trained as a lawyer, so I'm thinking, you know, there is no such thing as collusion. There's conspiracy. There's aiding and abetting. There's there's probably a dozen different <laughs> criminal laws, but collusion doesn't exist. But when you hear all that's going on, you would think that that was the ultimate crime. Yeah, I mean, you, you, I should be interviewing you because, like, your questions are often like really good answers. Um, the 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 with the collusion. What's happening is that, I mean, you have to sort of imagine, like, let's imagine somebody, um, you know, held up a train, you know, took took all the money, um, went across state lines, and then his defense is, but uh, I didn't actually take the money to Mexico. And then right. over and over again, he says, no Mexico, Mexico, no, no Mexico, no Mexico, no Mexico, no Mexico. That's where we are. I mean, we're, we're facing a story which is huge. A foreign government has interfered in the sovereignty of the United States in a fundamental way. 
which probably led to a different person being elected president of the United States. That is, for every uh, thinking American, a basic challenge. If we cannot carry out a democratic election, then we are not continuing the basic political regime of this country. Um, we're failing to pass it on to our children and grandchildren. Right. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, a Green, an Independent, whatever, it doesn't matter. If, you, if, you, if we can't, for reasons that are overpowering to us, actually do democracy, we're, we're in trouble. It's not. It's not a partisan issue, and we have to think about how we're going to answer that. And you know, whether it was Mr. Whether they got Mr. Trump elected or someone else is incidental to to the real issue. The real issue is protecting American democracy. So, but what Mr. Trump does is he defines it all about himself, which it's really not. I mean, he is just an instrument in all of this. He's right. just a little tool. He's not the big story. He's just the final outcome. We lost a cyber war. He's the payload of that cyber war. That's, that's what he is. But he defines him, this as, as if it were all about himself and his actions. And then he defines his actions, as you say, um, as not being collusive, um, which A, is really not, I mean, fundamentally not true. You know, he he urged the he urged the Russians to steal emails right. while they were stealing emails. Right. Um, his team took a meeting with with the Russians. Um, he certainly didn't do anything to discourage them from his contacts with his major foreign policy advisors. His major foreign policy advisors also, for example, Michael Flynn directly passed on Russian content. Um, right down to the day before the election. So, of course, there actually was collusion. I mean, however you want to define collusion. But you're right. He, he's basically saying he's trying to define it in such a way that he can stand on this little patch of ground and say, there's this one little thing I didn't maybe personally right. do. Right? Conspiracy is the crime. But the real issue is, how do we protect America from all of this? What does it mean about us that we went for this? Um, those are the real questions. One last area, and, and I'm sure you could uh, do a whole semester on this, so I, I say that in advance. The, the contrast between populism and authoritarianism and the fact that uh, we're hearing a lot of now that our, our political movement is a populist movement, that President Trump is the embodiment of that populist movement. And part of that populist movement was whatever catchphrase you want, drain the swamp or, or as Steve Bannon said, tear down the institutions uh, of government. It seems to me, as a layperson, not a historian, that there's a fine line between populism and authoritarianism. Can you talk about that? Well, let me let me actually try to make the question about about America and okay. about our, our particular our particular issues, because I think there's a way in which what you're calling populism bleeds into authoritarianism that's specific to to our country. When we talk about populism. It usually has two parts. The first part is you say the things that that people aren't supposed to say, right? You break taboos in public, which Mr. Trump did. But he's not the first to do it. There are lots of other people who did that, including in our history. Sure. The second part of populism is that you actually take on the so-called elite. Um, you do things that are against the interests of the elite in in the name of the people for the people, or at least you have some propositions of how you're going to do it. That's the second part of populism. And that is totally missing. That's totally absent. You have the rhetoric, you know, as you say, drain the swamp, um, destroy the administrative state, whatever it might be. You have that rhetoric, but you have zero policy 
um, that actually acts for the people as against the elites. Nothing. In fact, you have the reverse. After a year of the Trump administration, the, the, the only big piece of legislation it involves redistributing money from the bottom 90% to the top 1%, and it involves over 10 years or so taking healthcare away from 13 million people. That's not populism because it's aimed directly at the people. It's, it's the opposite of populism. Um, it's deliberately inflicting pain on the people who got Mr. Trump elected. That's something new. And I worry that the way that that leads to authoritarianism is that you inflict pain on the people deliberately. I mean, there can't be any mistake about this. They deliberately inflict pain on the people who got them elected because it was those people who were hurting who got Mr. Trump elected. Um, And then you use their pain to try to keep politics going because you you try to encourage people to blame the immigrants, to blame the Muslims, to, to blame the Jews, to blame the blacks especially for the pain that you yourself are causing. And in that way, you turn government, government then becomes no longer a conversation about policy. It becomes a conversation about whose fault everything is. And if you think about the course of last year, we've moved pretty far in that direction already. Not many of us really expect policy from this government, whether we're for it or against it. But we are getting used to this constant, this constant encouragement to blame things on other people. Right, so that's the way I'm afraid that that, that that this so-called populism, which isn't real, I think it's sado populism. It's not about gain; it's about pain. I think that's the way that this sado populism leads towards authoritarianism in our specific American circumstance. Tam, thank you so much. It's been a delight talking with you. I hope we can talk with you again in the future uh, if we have any issues coming up, and I'm sure we will on the political landscape that um, might be in your wheelhouse. I hope that we can reach out and talk to you again. Tom, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Timothy Snyder, the Levin Professor of History at Yale, about his current book and New York Times bestseller, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We're also on the NPR podcast directory. We welcome your feedback, so please go to Apple Podcasts and rate our podcasts, or you can even review it right there. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.